Hi, I'm Ellie Roark. I'm Wilson Gall, and we are bringing you the hottest topics from bird research. Well, not the hottest. <laughs> the some hottest. topics. We're bringing you some topics <laughs> from bird research. Um, but this topic is pretty hot. Uh, so this paper, an isotope filter and geolocator results constrain a dual feather isoscape to identify the wintering grounds of North American barn swallows. This is from 2016, I think. Keith Hobson and Kevin Cardinal. So that title is a little dense, but basically this article is using stable isotopes of carbon and hydrogen and a little bit sulfur and combining that with some uh, geolocator tags that were placed on birds to figure out where North American barn swallows are spending their winters. Feel free to find us on Twitter at FledgeCast and participate in our conversation here about this study. So, Ellie, what do you know about isotopes? Well, before I read this article, not much. Um, but basically, my understanding of isotopes is that different atoms of hydrogen, for example, have different weights based on the number of neutrons in the atom. And those weights end up spatially distributed such that you can kind of create a map of where the different weights of hydrogen atoms end up. So now why would different weights of hydrogen end up in different places spatially? Well, so hydrogen atoms get bound up in uh, water molecules and then precipitate out um, differently based on their different weights. Stop me if I'm getting this wrong, but um, so my understanding is that basically heavier hydrogen atoms that are part of a water molecule will cause that water to precipitate more quickly when it's falling from the sky, and then lighter hydrogen atoms will evaporate first, and so you end up with kind of based on, on weather patterns um, and how the hydrogen atoms and the water molecules end up in the food web. Um, they kind of end up distributed distinctly, spatially. Yeah, that's right. So if you picture like the west coast of North America, and there's a bunch of ocean water that's in the atmosphere, it comes blown in off the ocean, and it rains there in Oregon or California. Right. On average, the heaviest hydrogen is going to rain down in that first rainfall, and some of the lighter hydrogen is going to stay up in the clouds and travel farther inland. Yes, yeah, so you might expect to get more of the lighter hydrogen in the kind of rain shadow of the Rocky Mountains than you would on the Pacific coast. Yeah, that's right. So, so yeah, so there are all kinds of physical processes where the different isotopes of the same element sort of go through that process at different speeds, basically, or, or differently in some way. And so you end up with these patterns where, like, hydrogen sort of has a, a gradient in sort of like coastal to inland, and in North America it has a gradient latitudinally, so like north to south. Sometimes it has a gradient in altitude. Sure. Yep. Makes sense. So then, basically, what I understand is that critters, uh, so basically this, this hydrogen, hydrogen molecules become part of the food web, um, and then critters that consume these different weights of hydrogen atoms end up with the signature, the isotopic signature, in their tissue. So you can tell where they've been feeding, essentially. Yeah. So a, for a bird, that would be like its feathers. You could pluck a bird's feather and see what the hydrogen isotope is that's in 
that bird's feather, which then you could look at a map of where hydrogen, how hydrogen isotopes are distributed and tell roughly where that bird came from when it grew that feather. Cool. So, so then how does this relate to migration? How does that help you? Well, this is what's cool about this study, I think, and, and the possibility of doing research using these isotopes. Um, basically, it's, it's one thing to do research where we have visited South America, we've done bird surveys there, or people who live there have done bird surveys there, and uh, we know that there are barn swallows there during North American winter. And then we know that there are barn swallows in North America during the breeding season. But connecting different populations to say exactly, so the, the barn swallows that breed in Ontario, where are those wintering specifically? It's, very, it's actually quite difficult to get that information. But with the um, isotopic analysis here, you can actually figure out, you can capture a barn swallow in a place where it is breeding and figure out where it grew the feathers that it currently has, if it grew them on its wintering grounds. Yeah, so that's an important point because, so with the isotopes, sometimes some tissues in, in, in your body uh, are sort of constantly being replenished. And so you can take a blood sample and look at the hydrogen isotope in your blood or something, and it would, it would show some isotope signature. But if your blood is getting sort of continually replaced, it's only going to give you information about where you were eating for the last couple weeks, maybe. Right. But if you were to take a sample from, say, your fingernails or your, or your hair that is not continually being replenished, it's sort of dead tissue that it, it got made, and now it's dead and it's not changing, that dead tissue will have the isotopes from the location and the food that was being eaten at the time that tissue was produced. So with feathers, if you know that the birds grow their feathers during sort of a certain period of the year, and for barn swallows we know that they molt in winter on their wintering grounds, then no matter where else in the world you, you pluck a feather and sample it, you know that that feather was grown wherever that bird spent the winter. Right. It, it doesn't, you know, so if you pluck a feather in Canada, it's not going to have the isotopic signature of Canada, it's going to have the isotopic signature of whether, wherever that feather was grown, right. which is not the case with blood. If you drew blood in Canada after the barn swallow had been there for a couple weeks, you'd just get the isotopic signature of Canada. Yeah, but feathers are the equivalent of hair, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we have that relationship. We should probably note that, um, so this study did focus on barn swallows, which is why we've been using them as the example here, but um, not all bird species moat or molt on their wintering grounds. Many of them molt on their breeding grounds. So um, it's important to know that distinction before you try to do this analysis. Otherwise, you're going to get incorrect information. Yeah, I, th I think, if I'm recalling correctly, some species even sometimes molt partially along the migration yeah. route. They'll stop for a while and do a molt. So you do have to know for sure that the molt is happening you know, in, in the area that you're interested in. Right. So you talked a little bit about connectivity. And uh, we sort of know barn swallows winter in South America, um, but why is it important to narrow that down even more? Well, I would say that um, being able to figure out how individuals are migrating is kind of like a million dollar question for bird conservation. Where, where are the birds at all times, essentially? How, what pathways are they using? 
where are they breeding? Where are they wintering? What are those important habitats to protect? What matters for, for protecting the birds? So um, being able to figure out how specific populations of birds are moving and where they are spending their time specifically is uh, important and has a lot of conservation implications rather than kind of looking at larger population level movements. Yeah, and the reason for that is that the, the whole species doesn't behave basically as a single population pool. Right. The s- sort of smaller little areas are, are kind of subpopulations and um, they don't necessarily have a huge amount of connection to each other. And so, so this article... Right, so for example, barn swallows are actually found literally all over the world and the populations of barn swallows that breed in eastern Canada are the same species as the populations that breed in, you know, the western half of the U.S., but they don't necessarily follow the same patterns, use the same wintering grounds, whatever. They're, they're distinct populations in some ways. And it's, it's possible, you know, from a conservation perspective, you're often interested in how the population is doing, you know, bird numbers increasing or decreasing. And barn swallows, like a lot of aerial insectivores, have been sort of decreasing overall in North America. But um, this study was, was citing a few others that suggest that the barn swallow is actually one of the more uh, heterogeneous in that some local populations are decreasing, some local populations are increasing, and it's kind of different all over. So at the continental scale, overall, they're going down. But hidden within there are some areas that are, that are doing well and going up and some other areas that are really going down very quickly. And so, so from a conservation perspective, you want to be able to target some of those smaller populations. Right. And one of the things is that it might not be, in fact, it almost certainly isn't only the situations on the breeding grounds that are influencing the population. Right. In fact, you might have great conditions on a breeding ground, but if that population all goes to the same place to winter and there's something bad happening on the wintering grounds, then that population is going to crash. So being able to really tie specific breeding populations to specific wintering populations and know that those are the same birds going back and forth uh, lets you target your conservation to sort of the whole life cycle of, of that population of birds. Right, exactly. Okay, so... So we've got, for instance, with hydrogen, there's a, um, the isotopes uh, sort of through evaporation and precipitation as rain created a pattern over space, over a continent or multiple continents. Right. But to my understanding, that can be uh, not, <laughs> that pattern doesn't narrow down location necessarily a lot. It's a very large scale pattern, huge regions that have the same hydrogen isotopic signature. Yeah, so right. So I'm looking at one of the maps in this article right now, and they've got it sort of color-coded by hydrogen isotope values in the in the water, the precipitation, basically. And like, looks like basically four-fifths of South America has is all kind of almost the same color. Uh, the, the hydrogen is just pretty consistent there. There's a little bit down on the very southern tip that looks different, and uh, it looks like in some of the mountains on the west coast, it's different. But then pretty much the whole eastern chunk of South America has very similar hydrogen values. Right. So, yeah, so, so you pluck a feather and you get a hydrogen value. And if it's from that, that big area where it's all the same, you haven't really learned much about where that bird is going. In. Right. Oh, great. We know it's in South America. South America, <laughs> right, essentially, yeah. 
So what's interesting about this study, um, what's unique about this study, is that they actually did kind of multiple uh, analyses of different isotopes and then compared them, but for just the one species, for the barn swallows. But they tried to basically kind of overlap the picture of a couple different isotopic signatures to get a more specific location uh, for habitat use for barn swallows wintering. Yeah, they used carbon as the other main one. And so the situation with carbon, it, it's the same thing. It has these isotopes where some carbon atoms are heavier than others. But it's not precipitation that, that causes them to be different in space. It's actually with how carbon gets taken up in photosynthesis. So different plants have different photosynthetic pathways, basically different ways in which they do photosynthesis. And those different ways uh, incorporate the, the isotopes of carbon differently. So that you can tell, um, based on a sample of the, the isotopic weight of plant material, which kind of plant it was in sort of broad categories. So a lot of grasses have sort of one kind of photosynthetic pathway, and a lot of other plants have a different one. Um, and there, there's even some more, some more specific um, changes or differences that you can find. And so you can know something about what kind of plant uh, the tissue came from. And if you know where those general type of plants grow on a continent, you can therefore find out a little bit about um, where that tissue came from spatially. Yeah, so that can be even more specific than the precipitation patterns. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it, you might also have broad areas that are all the same. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the map now in the article from for the carbon isoscape, and isoscape is just the word they use for the, basically the map of the isotope values in space. So it's showing you sort of where the heavier and the lighter isotopes are. And there are still some really big chunks. For instance, actually the southern bit of, of South America, there's an even bigger chunk that is looks pretty similar pretty homogeneous than there is with the hydrogen. So, so actually the carbon would be worse in the southern part of South America for, for narrowing down a location. Um, but in the eastern and it's kind of northeastern area, the carbon shows some differences in places where the hydrogen showed no difference. Right, so using that overlap of figuring out whether birds, which of, sorry, which carbon uh, isotope the birds have and which hydrogen isotope would kind of let you get more information than just one or the other. Right. Okay. So, so you can overlay these two, the hydrogen and the carbon. Um, and then potentially there are, there are others that are commonly used. So nitrogen uh, is commonly used, especially in food web studies and some other things, because as a sort of like if as a predator species eats something lower down the food chain, the nitrogen gets incorporated in um, in different ways based on the isotopic weight. This study didn't use nitrogen because they said that um, because of, of sort of human inputs of nitrogen in agriculture, so fertilizer, uh, a lot of the spatial patterns in nitrogen sort of get blurred or they're hard to know exactly because nitrogen's moved around a lot. You right. know, if you ship a bag of fertilizer, you could ship it very far. Yeah. And so that nitrogen... So we're kind signature, of homogenizing the nitrogen signature. At least in heavy agriculture areas. Or yeah. It makes it a little more difficult um, in, for some uses. So they didn't use nitrogen, but they did use sulfur. Uh, and sulfur is one that um, is really for use in marine areas. Basically, marine sources of sulfur have 
uh, a, a much different isotopic signature than terrestrial sources. And so um, you can basically tell anything that's been eating seafood because it's got a, a sort of classic marine isotope signature. Yeah, sure. So basically you can get uh, this sort of ocean sulfur within a band sort of 100 kilometers inland from the coast. So if that's getting incorporated into a food web, that would let you pick out a bird that is feeding sort of right within 100 k's of the coast or farther inland. Yeah, right. So then there's another layer of specificity you can add on top of the hydrogen and carbon isotopes. And then for an additional layer of specificity, these authors also uh, used a, a different method, non-isotopic, uh, to try to figure out wintering grounds um, or narrow down possible wintering grounds. So they also attach these geolocators to a couple of birds. So, um, so basically, in order to sample feathers from these birds and, and figure out what isotopes the birds are have in their tissues, um, they're, the authors are misnetting birds and then picking feathers and then they send the feathers off to a lab or, or do the processing themselves. Um, but while they're misnetting these birds, they were also, they tagged some of them with geolocators and, um, and then tried to recapture the birds on their wintering grounds. Um, and so they were successfully able... I don't think the recaptures were on the wintering grounds. I think they were on the breeding grounds the following year. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. No, that's right. They did, uh, like, one full migration cycle of down to the wintering grounds and back for breeding the next year. Thank you. Um, anyway, so they recapture the birds one year later when they come back to the breeding grounds. And obviously, that is, in some ways, a more accurate way to figure out where the birds have gone, depending on the accuracy of your geolocators. But it's very difficult to recapture birds and recapture rates for banded birds and birds with these trackers on them are, are actually quite low. Yeah, this study actually seemed, if I read it correctly, it seemed to get quite a few of those tags back. They got a little under half of the tags back. Which is pretty remarkable. It's yeah, like the it's highest like... success rate I've ever seen in a study. Yeah, yeah, usually they don't get very many back at all. Right. So anyway, but they have this additional data of, of the geolocators to figure out, okay, well, where did the birds actually winter from this population we were sampling for the isotopes as well? And there's quite a bit of uncertainty even with those geolocator tags because barn swallows are, are pretty small. They cannot carry a very heavy device. And so these are not GPS tags. This is not a GPS device right. at all. These are tags that basically record the amount of light and then... Uh, you know, every day at some time. How how long is the day? How you know how long are the light periods? How long are the dark periods? Yeah. And then use a bunch of statistics to try to figure out where you were in the world based on how long the day was. Yeah. And so um, there's some uncertainty in that it it can sort of yeah. Uh, there are some problems. You know, if the bird spends a lot of time in the shade, that can mess up the results. Sure. And so there's still with these light-based geolocators. There's still a fair bit of uncertainty, but they're smaller and lighter. And so you can put them on a bird like a barn swallow and the bird can carry it around for a year, uh, which you wouldn't be able to do with a GPS that requires more battery power, yeah. basically. Right, exactly. And the uncertainty for geolocators that seem to have worked correctly um, when they're recollected off the bird is, is much smaller than what we were describing for the possible area of the hydrogen isotope signature you yeah. know it's not like 
we know they were in South America. It's more like we know they were within, you know, a hundred kilometer radius of this area. Yeah, the, the, the uncertainty is hundreds of kilometers, not thousands. Right, exactly. Um, so based on this information, based on the geolocators, they know that they can narrow down the, the isotopic signature to areas where they found birds using the geolocator. So even if there's a, an area in the middle of North America and an area in the middle of South America that have the same isotopic signature, they can rule out that North American area for um, where barn swallows are spending the winter because they do know that um, these birds that they tagged ended up in South America. And that's what you would expect for the rest of the population. And even more importantly for this study, there is a large chunk of the Amazon basin, so sort of in the northern third of South America, where the hydrogen was very even and the carbon was very even. Right. So there was a large area where, based on the isotopes, you, you could say that the barn swallow is in that area, but you couldn't say much more than that, and that's about a third of the continent. But when they did the geolocator, they only got tags back from, I don't know, it was nine or maybe 13 birds or something, or 14. It was 14 birds. But yeah. all of those 14 were south of basically a line running through the middle of that big even, isotopically even area. So you have this huge area that you can't differentiate based on isotopes, but you can cut out about half of that area as even being a possibility. You could just totally remove it from consideration based on the geolocator tags. Right. Yeah, which, I mean, again, the sample size is very small there. So could there be barn swallows from that population that are spending time in the north of the basin? Maybe. But based on this data, it doesn't seem likely. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm looking at the map of the geolocator tag locations, and it's pretty convincing. You know, the, the 14 yeah. are all south of that line, and they're kind of clumped and close to each other. You know, these are, it doesn't look like they're sort of scattered all over the place. They're, they're in some clumps. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's of course possible and, and maybe even likely that you might find some that are north of that line if you were to put geolocator tags on a hundred birds or something. But remember, you know, these are all, these are geolocator tags coming from like, I think a New Brunswick, Canada population. And so it wouldn't, it's not super surprising if all of those birds go to roughly the same area. Um, and you might find that sort of the northern part of South America has barn swallows that are in some different breeding area from, from North America. Right? Yeah. All right. So, so that sort of sets the scene. Now, so what, what, what would you say are the conclusions? What are the summaries from this? Well, basically, I think they've narrowed down the region where this... So I think, yeah, Wilson just mentioned the population they were looking at was mostly from New Brunswick. They had the um, samples, the misnetting was done in New Brunswick and Ontario and uh, a site in one other Canadian province, but mostly talking about... Canadian breeding. Eastern Canada. Eastern Canada. Yeah. Um, barn swallows from Eastern Canada. And basically the conclusions of this article were that they've developed this, this method that seems to have been relatively successful for overlaying multiple isotopes to narrow down the, the possible locations of, of the wintering grounds. And they pinned it down to basically this area in kind of Eastern South America. Yeah, it's, it's basically... Southeastern Brazil, basically. Yeah, the output of their study is sort of this map with the probability that 
these, these barn swallows wintered there based on the feather isoscopes. And they had something like 120 or 130 barn swallows. And so for each individual bird, they sort of find the probability of that bird coming from different cells. They basically made a grid all over South America and said, what's the probability that the bird came from this little block? Yeah. And then they did that for all 120 birds and then basically summed all those probabilities for all the 120 birds to produce this final map. So the map is sort of a map of the probability of the population. It looks like a heat map, birds. basically, yeah, yeah, of where you might find these wintering birds. And basically they're in southern Brazil, northern Bolivia, east central Argentina, southern Paraguay, and coastal Chile is sort of the, the geographic area. And, um, and, and one of the things that they found is these are all sort of uh, some, some grasslands and savannas in that sort of northeast and central region of South America. So the, so the hydrogen would have sort of helped with a little bit of the north-south gradient. The carbon isotope would have helped separating the grassland habitats from basically, you know, trees and some other non-grassland areas. Right. And so we've got this sort of picture of both the habitat and the area of the continent that this population is going to. Yeah, which is very cool, because now we have this this more accurate picture of that Eastern Canadian breeding population, specifically what habitat they're using, which just helps paint a, a more detailed picture for that population. I should say that we mentioned the sulfur, and in the study they didn't end up using the sulfur isotope to help narrow down this, this estimate of where the birds came from. And the reason for that is that to calibrate the sulfur isotope, they had to get feathers from birds that also had a geolocator tag because they wanted to know for sure that the bird was in sort of like a coastal area. Mm. So they were looking for birds where they could say, we know this bird wintered in a coastal area. What is the sulfur isotope value that it had? Because sulfur is, there's not a good, it hasn't been used as extensively in terrestrial systems as hydrogen and carbon has. It's been used more for marine things. So they weren't entirely sure that they would be able to differentiate birds that were in coastal versus inland areas. Uh, and so they needed both a feather and a geolocator tag yeah. for birds that came from the coast and not from the coast. And they, they got like something like seven birds where they had both a feather and a geolocator tag. Yeah, it was really low. Two of those birds had been in coastal areas and five had not, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. So, so they weren't confident enough in the difference. They saw a difference between those coastal birds and the inland ones, but the sample size was so small, they weren't confident enough in it to use it they reported that difference and they proposed a, a threshold measure that in the future you could use and basically if a, if a bird has heavier than this threshold for their sulfur isotope then you could say this is a coastal bird and if it had you know if it's lighter than the threshold you'd say it's inland yeah um, but they that was sort of a very preliminary result based on a very small sample size and would need to be followed up in the future before you could you know really use that in the way that they've used the hydrogen and the carbon. Seems promising though. I mean, it seems like they found a difference and with, with a bigger sample size that would probably work. Yeah. Well, I think the results are really exciting here because the possibility of being able to narrow populations down and look at this migration connectivity between, you know, in a, a population of birds um, is just so, like, this is so much more feasible and so much cheaper than trying to tag hundreds of birds with geolocators to do an equivalent study. Yeah, so these light geolocators are cheaper than a GPS. 
Right. But the isotope is cheaper than the light geolocator. By about 10 times. It's like 10 times cheaper. Yeah, it's a tenth of the cost. Yeah. So you could, you could study 10 birds with the isotope approach for the same cost as studying one bird with the geolocator right. approach. And having it be a single capture process for these birds is a huge benefit. The, the logistics and probability of double capture for birds in a study is... Yeah. Which you need for the geolocators because right. you have to put it on, then you have to catch them a year later and take it off. Right. And you need for banding studies and things like that. If you're trying to identify individuals and where they're headed and, and what happens to them, um, you know, individually tagging birds is just a, a difficult and problematic way to do it. Um, so being able to take a quick feather sample and then release the bird and never have to deal, never have to disrupt that bird's life again, basically, um, and still get a lot of information about where, where, what habitat that bird is using is really cool. Yeah. Um, they, they also mentioned that sort of this, the, the approach of using isotopes for studying migration is developing really quickly, very rapidly. Part of the reason we chose this paper is not because this paper is doing anything too spectacular per se, but because this approach is used so frequently to study migration. Like when I pick right. up a journal, a copy of the Auk, for instance, one of these ornithology journals, there are probably three or four articles in every journal that are using isotopes to study migration in some bird. Right, it's not just, and it's also not just birds. They're being used in all kinds of critters, all kinds of biological research right now. Yeah, they've been used uh, really interestingly to study monarch butterfly migration in North America, also to study the migration of dragonflies uh, over the Indian Ocean. You know, they're, they're used um, in all sorts of things. So it's a very common approach and one that you're going to be hearing more about because it is turning into a really powerful tool for studying migrations and food webs. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they were saying that, that there currently isn't an isoscape for Central America. So oh, remember, that's right. to, do the, to do the feather isotope, you need to know how that isotope, the hydrogen or the carbon, varies across space. And right, so there you have are to these... kind of have the initial map of what the... Yeah, where's the heavy yeah. hydrogen, where's the light hydrogen. That doesn't exist yet for Central America, but in the study they said that, that um, there should be an isoscape for Central America coming out fairly soon. Yeah, and the Caribbean. I yeah. guess there's somebody working on that. Yep. Uh, and they were saying a lot of the barn swallows in Western North America winter in that Central American area there. So soon you should be able to use isotopes to study western barn swallow populations, for instance. Um, so yeah, this is moving along really quickly as a method. Yeah. And using these geolocator tags to basically cut out you know, a huge part of these homogeneous areas for the, um, for the isotopes narrows down the precision of the isotope method a lot. Hmm. So I have a question for you, Wilson, about um this study. So it's clear to me that this paper is one of a number that have been published by these authors um, that is kind of, they've asked a number of research questions and are, are trying to answer them and, and writing a bunch of different papers about them, basically, um, all surrounding a couple different mist, mist netting sites and um, this isotopic analysis, etc. So they, they briefly mentioned some capture of birds in North America, or sorry, in America, in the U.S., in, like, Alabama or something. And it was unclear to me how that factored into this analysis. Yeah, right. So the, a lot of the data that they had here were for birds that they actually captured for different studies in 2015 or right. something. The yeah. feathers didn't even, they didn't capture many of these birds specifically for this study, which 
before I answer your question, that just brings up, I wonder, like usually if you gather some data and you test a bunch of different hypotheses with that same data, you, in the statistical process, you have to correct for having asked a lot of different questions. It's a multiple comparisons right, sure. correction. I wonder, I mean, these sample sizes are not tiny, but they're not huge either. They're, you know, mm -hmm. 120 or 130 yeah. birds. I wonder right. when you're asking multiple questions, but published in different studies, if you still sort of should somehow correct for multiple comparisons. I mean, it's the mm -hmm. same data and they're testing a, a bunch of different hypotheses mm -hmm. with that data. I, though, yeah, I guess this paper actually in some ways wasn't doing strict hypothesis testing. It was more like making this no. probability map. I mean, they did a few sort of hypothesis tests along the way. Right, but their primary objective seems to have been like piloting this method. Yeah, I'm and then, through it. Anyway, I'm yeah. just sort of curious about that, like whether at some point if they keep publishing more and more studies based on these same 120 <laughs> feather samples, <laughs> At some point, uh, yeah, you, you would need to correct for multiple comparisons. But anyway, um, your question about these birds in Alabama. So this is about, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, this is about the sulfur thing. Um, oh, which is why it didn't end up in the results, because of the sample size. Well, they did two different issues. things with the sulfur. Okay. They, they captured, they had some birds where, based on the geolocator, the light geolocator, they knew whether the bird had wintered in a coastal or an inland area. They had some, like seven birds. And with those birds, they looked at the sulfur values to try to figure out if they were going to be differentiable, if you could tell whether it was coastal or inland based on the sulfur. Okay. And it looked like, yeah, probably you're going to be able to tell, but the sample size was pretty small. Sure. And so they didn't use it for this probability map. For a larger group of birds... Uh, including some of these ones from Alabama and Washington State or something, I can't remember. That's right, yeah, it was um, Washington. They didn't have the geolocator, but they still just ran the sulfur isotope analysis on the feathers and uh, to sort of see what they would see. And it looks like um, there are sort of differences in those however many birds from Alabama and whatever uh, that look like probably there are some birds that are in marine and some in sort of terrestrial areas. So sort of preliminary look at saying, okay, let's take a hundred feathers okay, I and see. see, does it seem like there's enough variation in the sulfur here that we're probably picking up some coastal inland birds? And it looked like Got probably it. yes. Yeah. But um, but I think until they have until they're a little more certain about that. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. So here it says so overall, relatively few individuals of that bigger group of hundred or something. Uh, showed evidence of growing feathers in areas influenced by marine aerosols. Only birds from New Brunswick, 13 birds, and Alabama, uh, 6 birds, had sulfur over their sort of proposed threshold. And so... Oh, that's right. They were trying to figure out what the appropriate threshold for sulfur... Yeah, but also I think probably trying to figure out how, how relevant is this? How, how worthwhile is it to pursue sulfur? And if in their right. survey of a couple hundred birds, they only had, you know, 12 that were in coastal areas, yeah. then that would suggest it's not going to be a particularly important, useful tool a lot of the time because most of the birds just look like they're inland anyway. Based on their preliminary estimate of the sulfur threshold, yeah. it looks like most of the birds are inland. So you're not going to gain a whole lot of new information 
from this sulfur analysis, at least for these barn swallows. Right. You mean that it looks like like the isotopic analysis appears that most of the birds are inland, regardless yeah. of whether or not they were actually inland. Or not. Yeah, that's kind of what it looks like so okay. far from, from their sort of preliminary results here. Got it. So that's how I read that anyway. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to, to talk about with this one? Well, not too much. Oh, oh, yes. There was one thing that they mentioned at the very end of the discussion, the potential for analysis of claws instead of feathers, um, isotopes and claws, which might give more of a short-term picture of where the birds kind of just were. Yeah, well, than it's... the feathers, which, you know, they, they basically have, birds have distinctive molt periods and then they keep the same feathers for a long time. So, um, whereas claws are kind of in a more constant, more like fingernails than hair for humans. Yeah, so with anything that where there's sort of dead tissue, but it's sort of growing continuously, like your fingernails or your hair, where you've always got some new stuff being produced, you basically, if you picture it, you sort of have layers. You've almost got like a continuous record through time right? Uh, of those isotope values, which is different from the feathers, where they grow that feather pretty quick, and you know where they were when they grew that feather over, over two weeks or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the claws... Uh, can potentially give you sort of a, a time series. And for instance, I, I know this has been used to uh, estimate movement for some whales based on the baleen. So the baleen so and the cool. whales. Yeah, the baleen and the whales is a similar thing. It, it sort of grows continuously and it's dead material and the isotopes don't change. And this has been done with, uh, what was it? Preserved skeletons in like, like maybe it's the Natural History Museum in London or something. That there's huh. this, this whale that's been dead for. 150 years or something, and they sampled a little bit of the baleen plate, and basically the layers show sort of for for months or maybe even years before this whale died, uh, show sort of changes in um, the isotope signature in this baleen plate. Uh, so it's sort of like taking a, a core of ice or or you know rock sediments or right, something. You yeah. get these layers, and so you can sort of trace more continuously through time the pathway that this whale was making sort of moving through the oceans. Yeah, exactly. Um, so potentially you could do something similar with bird claws. I don't think you get years, but you might get a couple months. Right, but you might get a couple months, and that could be really cool in terms of looking at how birds are using stopover habitat or things like that, you know, where the migration corridor actually is for these birds without for, for individuals, basically, which is um, much cooler and much more specific data than we get from looking at, you know, radar bird migration or... Um, just kind of general making guesses about flyways based on where we know the wintering population is and where the breeding population is. And obviously it would extend the isotope uh, method to birds that don't molt on the wintering grounds. So you yeah. would be able to use it for birds that, that keep the same feathers on the wintering ground and then fly, fly yep. them. Yeah, very cool. There's a lot of cool possibilities of how this kind of this method could be used for um, some interesting migration stuff in the future. So if you want to learn more about this article um, or read it for yourself, you can check it out in the AUK. Um, 2016, it came out, December of 2016. Oh, sorry, January of 2016. And um, it's called, once again, An Isotope Filter and Geolocator Results Constrain a Dual Feather Isoscape to Identify the Wintering Grounds of North American Barn Swallows by Keith A. Hobson and Kevin J. Cardinal. Cardinal. The DOI, if you want to look it up on the computer, is 10.1642 backslash 
AUK, those are all capital dash 15 dash 149.1. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie backslash ecomodel.